I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a fabulous day. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Here's my coffee, and the Lord knows I like my coffee. I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host, and we're going to take a one-day break from our journey through Exodus and do our first uh, Christmas devotional. And today we're going to look at Mary. Now, Mary has become, I think, my favorite hero of the Christmas story. And I wrote an essay 10 years ago, and I'm going to read that essay to you today. I, forgive me for reading it, but I don't think I can say it better than I wrote it. And I hope at the end of it, you'll feel about Mary the way I do, and that you will look at the Christmas story in a new light and realize the courage and the um, fearlessness of this young Jewish maiden named Mary. Let's get started. I'm not going to lie here. I've made fun of my Catholic brethren over the years. I've debated with them about many things. And today, though, I'm going to tip my hat a bit to them concerning Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was an amazing woman. I'll be using, apart from the Bible, a book that's titled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. Uh, he was an Episcopalian minister of Jewish heritage. He wrote this book, and it's a harmony of the Gospels framed within the context of Jewish customs and Jewish culture. It's a fascinating reference, uh, shedding light on many aspects of the Gospels, and I'll be drawing primarily from chapter 6 of that book, which is titled The Nativity of Jesus the Messiah. All biblical references, unless otherwise specified, are going to come from the Reformed Study Bible, published by Legionnaire Ministries. I'm going to be making use of one, one other resource, to me a very valuable one, but albeit a subjective resource. I'm going to be making use of my experience as a husband, a father, and a grandfather. I'm 67 years old. And I've seen a great deal of life. I don't feel badly about using my life observations when discussing biblical stories like this because humanity has never changed from the beginning of time. People love, they lose. Uh, they're mean, they're sweet, they're nice. Um, they judge fairly, they judge unfairly, they get married, they get divorced. Uh, mankind has not changed. So though the culture in first century Israel of course, is much different than 21st century America, almost no comparison. What does remain the same is the human element. 
And that's what I'm going to be drawing on. Because when I read the story of Mary, I'm reading it through the eyes of someone who is a father, a husband, and a grandfather. Every year, God gives me one thought about Christmas, it seems like, that I focus on. And 10 years ago, that thought was Mary, the mother of Jesus. So let's get right to it. Here's the story. If you've ever seen any church Christmas pageant, you know the essence of the Christmas story. Gabriel, the angel messenger, appears to Mary, informing her that she, betrothed to a man named Joseph, would become pregnant. She would give birth to Messiah, calling him Jesus. Next, in most church pageants, Mary and Joseph trek to Bethlehem to answer the call of a Roman census, Bethlehem being their ancestral home. There's no room at the inn. So they end up in a stable where Mary gives birth to Jesus. A host of angels then appear to shepherds minding some flocks outside of Bethlehem. They rush into Bethlehem, finding Mary, Joseph, and the new baby. They leave, telling their story to anyone who will listen. Then, in the pageant, enters the Magi. Three These wise men from the east follow a star that leads them to Jesus. The three wise men present their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they leave on camels. A choir sings Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, or perhaps a chorus of Silent Night, and the curtain drops on a thoughtful yet joyous Mary and Joseph and a few sheep. Another successful Christmas pageant is completed. Now I'm cursed, or blessed if you will, with an inquisitive mind and an active imagination. As I have read the account of the Christmas birth of the Messiah, the following questions have bubbled to the top. Question number one. Why does Mary immediately leave after the angelic visitation to go visit Elizabeth? She's just been visited by an angel. This is this is no this is no small thing. Uh, God hasn't sent an angel or prophet to Israel for four hundred years. This signaled the end of the four hundred silent years. She had received a visit from Gabriel. It doesn't say that she says anything to her mother and father. It just says she immediately leaves and goes to visit Elizabeth, who is getting ready to have a miracle birth of her own. Why would she run to Elizabeth right away? Inquiring minds want to know. Question number two, why in the world would Joseph take a wife, who's nine months pregnant at this part in the story, nine months pregnant on a journey to Bethlehem? It's an uphill journey and it's not an easy journey. And she's nine months pregnant. Edersheim says that as her as Joseph's wife, she wasn't required to go to the census. She could have stayed home and had the baby in the comfort and safety of Joseph's home with his mother-in-law there to help. Um, why did you do that, Joseph? Why did you bring Mary on an arduous journey like that? Third question, why was there no room at the inn in Bethlehem? Room for them in Bethlehem, especially for women ready to give birth. The simple answer is there was no room at the inn. That's what we all hear. That's what we all read. But if you look underneath, my inquisitive little brain starts thinking, excuse me, isn't Bethlehem, 
the ancestral home of Mary and Joseph, the lineage of David. Surely they have distant relatives there. And in that culture, if a relative shows up, you make room for them. Even if it's all you can do to, to put a mat on, on the floor in front of the fireplace, you know, you, you find a place. And, and, and especially if this distant relative is nine months pregnant, are you telling me that there was nobody related to Mary and Joseph that could have helped them out? Apparently not. From what I discovered, Nettersheim's book, Familial Hospitality, was an important part of that culture. Surely room for a young mother-to-be could be found, but the answer is simply no, there wasn't room. Question number four, why didn't Joseph and Mary and Jesus return home immediately after their business was concluded, after they'd registered for the census? It wouldn't take that long to do that. You see, in the story, the shepherds come, and then we hear about the Magi, but the Magi come several years later. Joseph and Mary are still in Bethlehem several years later, a couple years later, perhaps. We know this because of the timeline provided by the Magi when they went to visit Herod. And he sent soldiers to kill every male child three years old and under. So that means that Jesus had to be somewhere in that age range. So the the Magi didn't come right on the heels of the shepherds. Why did Mary and Joseph, why were they still there in Bethlehem a couple years later? Why didn't they just turn around and go back home, especially after the baby was born? Hmm. That's a curious question to me. And then they go to Egypt. They flee to Egypt to get away from Herod. And they stay there for a couple years more. So it's five, six years maybe, seven years, uh, before they return to their hometown. Why? One last question, and this one deals with the other end of the story. Jesus is 33 years old. He's on the cross. He's dying. At the foot of the cross, there's a scene where he, he looks at Mary and John, his beloved disciple, and he looks at Mary and says, Mother, behold your son. He looks at John and says, Son, behold your mother. He gives Mary into the care of John. Sweet scene. But here's the elephant in the room. Jesus had other half-brothers, actual children of Mary and Joseph, James being one. Why weren't they there? Because it's customary that if the eldest, if the father dies, then the eldest son takes care of the mother. If the eldest son dies, then the next eldest son steps forward to take care of the mother. The next eldest son was not there. Where were they? Why does Jesus have to give care of his mother to anyone other than than the next eldest sibling. So here's my ruminations. The key to all those questions, the answer to all these questions is found in Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. That's the answer to all the questions. Before they came together, before they consummated their marriage, she was found to be pregnant with someone else's child. Mary's likely between 14 and 16 years of age per custom of that day for betrothals. Now, here's where I draw my personal life experience as a father, husband and teacher, middle school, high school students. 
Move past the enormity of the angelic visitation for the moment, if you can. I mean, an angel showing up in your room. It's hard to move past. But try to. And let's visit the humanity of Mary's new situation. I can just picture in my imagination, after the conversation with Gabriel, after Gabriel has left, Mary sits down abruptly. She's pregnant. Joseph's not the father. And this in a time when adultery could be punished by stoning. That's hard. At this very moment, I'm envisioning some of my 15-year-old female students and what she would do were she to find herself pregnant. Who could she tell? Who would she tell? Probably not her father at first. As a father of a daughter now grown, were I to have found out that my then 15-year-old daughter was pregnant, it's very possible that conversation wouldn't have been a pleasant one. I'm ashamed to say that. But I could see it not being a very pleasant conversation. Who's the father would be the question I would demand to know the answer to. Could she go to her mother? Perhaps. Uh, it says here, though, that she went to see Elizabeth. And it makes sense. Elizabeth would be an older woman, a distant relative. But the story's already been spread about how an angel had visited Elizabeth's husband and she had a pregnant she was pregnant, a miraculous pregnancy. So Mary leaves to visit Elizabeth. And she's there for three months until Elizabeth gives birth to John. And then she comes home. I would think in those three months, she would be talking with Elizabeth, trying to figure out how to navigate the deep waters of what's what this all entails. First of all, was she losing her mind? Did she imagine an angel showing up? I'm sure Elizabeth comforted her in that regard. Because she could probably tell her about the angelic visitation and Mary could see that it was real. She had to know, Mary had to know when word got out about her being pregnant, her life was going to change forever and probably not for the better. So Mary goes to Elizabeth in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy and staying for approximately three months before returning home. Three months pregnant. She walks into the door after visiting with Elizabeth. She walks into the door of her home with the baby bump. Just let that sit for a second. Your 14 or 15 year old daughter walks into the door after visiting a relative for three months, pregnant. I don't know if she told Joseph everything first or her parent tried to tell her parents. The scripture's silent on that. But no matter how it happened from an outsider's perspective, she runs off to visit a relative, comes home three months pregnant. I know my first question would be as her father, who's the father of this child? What could she say? God? God hadn't spoken for 400 years. There were no prophets around who could validate or examine her story of Gabriel's visitation. Her only options were to tell the truth, which no one would believe. To say nothing, which would only provide fodder for speculation and gossip. Or to lie, perhaps saying she'd been raped. I don't picture her lying. Her integrity is mentioned 
by Gabriel's conversation with her leads me to believe that lying would be beneath her. So the options are tell the truth or say nothing. In any case, Mary was doomed, and we don't know what she did. And as she was for all intents and purposes the wife of Joseph, her fate was in his hands. And I wonder if this is also the reason no mention is made of Mary's family. In the story, the shame her pregnancy would bring in her family would be great. And I, I don't know. My imagination can only imagine the tension in that household when they realized that their daughter was pregnant before she had slept with Joseph. And this leads us to Joseph and his response. Now, Matthew tells us a few things about Joseph. He was a stand-up guy. He was a just man, not willing to put her to shame, make a public spectacle of her apparent shameful activities. He was afraid to take her as his wife until Gabriel appeared to him, informing him of the truth. This was probably more than fine with her family to let Joseph take her off their hands because Joseph stepped right up and said, I'm going to marry her anyway. And he did. But he did not lay with her. He did not consummate this marriage. But he went through the marriage ceremony with her. And she was married. And he took her off her family's hands. So that takes me to the last question. Now she's nine months pregnant. And she's on a donkey heading to Bethlehem with Joseph. Joseph, why did you take a girl that's nine months pregnant? She didn't have to go, first of all. Custom uh, culture did not dictate it. All he had to do was go register with the census, turn around and come home. He could have left her with his parents while he made the journey. Well, not only was her pregnancy bringing shame to her family, but it would also bring shame to Joseph's family by virtue of the fact that she's married to Joseph. And if you stop and think, it makes perfect sense for Joseph to want to take her with him because this would mean leaving her for an extended period of time alone with perhaps an an anger, an angry mother-in-law, a shamed mother-in-law. So he takes Mary with him so she doesn't have to deal with his mother when he's not around. That makes sense to me. I could see that. So so they get to they get to Bethlehem. So Mary accompanies him to Bethlehem and leads me to one of the most troubling questions I've had over the years. Why was there no room at the inn? Okay, we know the answer. The town was crowded. Okay, fine. All rooms were taken at the inn. Here's where we have to look a little deeper. In that culture, again, in that time, if a relative came to town and needed a place to stay, you found a place for them to stay. And if this relative is nine months pregnant, you would find a place if it was nothing more than a mat on the floor in front of the fire in the in the main room. You know, this was their ancestral town. They had to have distant relatives on both sides, Mary and Joseph's sides. Surely somebody there would have had pity on them and put them up for the few days it would take to register for the census. Couldn't find anybody. There's plenty, there was plenty of time. Bethlehem is not that far away. There's plenty of time between her when she comes home at three months pregnant to when Joseph shows up with her nine months pregnant. In that six months time period, there's plenty of time for the rumors to start flying. And I could easily see when they get to Bethlehem, nobody's going to give her a room. There's no place for her. She's an adulteress. That's what her reputation would have been. So 
I don't find it hard to believe that there was no room at the end. There was no room for them anywhere. Mm. So the shepherds come. The shepherds go. Between one or two years later, the magi come. The magi go. Wait, why are they still in Bethlehem a couple years later? Remember, that was one of my questions. Well, the answer is this. It's back home is not a good place to be right now. Joseph knows the truth, that this is Messiah in her womb. Mary knows the truth. Everybody else at home thinks they know the truth, and they think that Mary is an adulteress, that she is a faithless woman, and that Joseph is probably nuts to marry a woman like that, who's carrying proof of her infidelity in her womb. Joseph, again, is a stand-up guy. I believe he loved Mary. And I, I would not find it hard to believe that he did not want her to suffer the indignities of that atmosphere back home. So they stayed in Bethlehem for a couple of years. Herod comes. He's going to try to kill the child. Gabriel tells Joseph, take the baby and move. Get out quick. They do. They head to Egypt. When Herod dies, they come back from Egypt. Now Jesus is probably maybe five or six years old, maybe. I don't know. You know, a small child. And then they head home. And it's probably cooled down enough that they could come back into town. And yes, there'd probably still be gossip, but it wouldn't be as ugly as it was. <sighs> so do you get it? <sighs> Mary is amazing. And then when you look at the end of Jesus' life, he's on the cross and he hands Mary over to John and he says, Mother, behold your son. And John, John, behold your mother. His other brothers weren't there. Is it possible that as they grew up, they heard all the innuendo and the gossip? They knew that Jesus was an illegitimate son in the eyes of the world. I wonder if that colored their impression of him, their feelings for him, and their feelings for their mother. I'm wondering why they weren't at the foot of the cross while Jesus was dying. Yet Mary was. Because custom dictated if the eldest son dies, then he hands over the care of the mother to the next eldest son, which would have been James, I believe. James wasn't there. Why? It wasn't like he didn't know it was happening. Again, is it possible that their hearts were stained by the gossip, rumors, and innuendo? And perhaps they even had conversations with their father, Joseph. And he said, no, it's not my son. I don't know. There's all that, there's a lot of stuff there that we just don't know. But I do know that Mary's other children weren't there while the eldest son of that family was dying on the cross. So Jesus gave her into John's care. Do you see why Mary is my hero? Do you get it? She had to have known what she was letting herself in for when Gabriel met her in her room. And yet, her response was an immediate, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She had to have known what she was letting herself in for, and that was her response. Apparently, no hesitation. God called her to an incredible adventure. He called her to pay an incredible price. 
the rest of her life, Mary would be known as the mother of an illegitimate son. She was a remarkable young lady. The centerpiece of Christmas is indeed the birth of our Savior, as it should be, but Mary deserves a place of honor in this story. This Protestant will indeed be thinking of Mary this holiday season. The mother of our Lord sacrificed all to walk in obedience to God. May it be possible that I have a fraction of the courage of this young Jewish maiden named Mary when God calls me to my next adventure. Merry Christmas, and God bless you. Bye-bye. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And agree or disagree with me, as you will. Don't make my thoughts your thoughts. Think for yourself. Have a great day. Bye-bye.